Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. Pulpit rabbis get a chill uh, in their bones when the book of Exodus ends and the book of Ayukra begins and they're thinking to themselves, what am I going to do with this material for 10 Shabbatot in a row? I mean, how, how much can I mine the sacrificial system and Tazria and childbirth and, 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 and all, ooh, look at that, very strong light, and all um, that is there for modern meaning. And it always produces, but there's always a certain anxiety uh, before you find what you're looking for. So this, since this is my first time teaching on the book of Ayakra, at least formally in the partial cycle this year, I had a little tickle during the week saying, what am I going to find? And I hope you'll agree in about 25 minutes that what we'll have found will be actually quite wonderful and interesting in an unexpected place because, you know, the, the rabbinic tradition, the, the original hyperlink in the sense that you start opening up, going down one rabbit hole, and you realize there's a whole warren down there and things are connected that you didn't realize on the surface. And really, it really is the case with no hyperbole that no verse is devoid of application in the modern um, in the modern life, in the modern milieu. So what we're going to do is start with a verse in Vayikra, but we're going to end somewhere far away from that. Uh, there was a text sheet that went out in the Shabbat email. I hope all of you have it because I will read all the text out loud, but I, it's easier to follow along if you have it in front of you. Um, it was in the Temple Betham Shabbat email uh, that went out yesterday. Um, we'll start with uh, the verse itself. So chapter 4 of Ayikra, um, verse 29. So if you have a chumash, you can certainly just go to that if you don't have the sheet. And we're talking, the first few chapters of the book of Ayikra delineate uh, the specific ways in which many different types of offerings uh, will be um, offered at, at, the, t- at the temple. Um, and so the, the, the distinguishing rationales behind the different offerings, right? The situations one would bring a chatat, a sin offering, or a shlamim, a well, well-being offering, etc., etc., and also where in the temple they would take place, and the specific micro-rituals that the priest and the priest helpers would be involved in, uh, in producing them. So tucked in at the end of, the ch- of chapter 4, it's page 600 in uh, you have a verse which you could read over a hundred times and not pay attention to, except that we're going to pay attention to it. We're talking about the, um, the chatat offering, one of several offerings that you would bring uh, to expiate uh, guilt for having uh, committed a particular avera, a particular, particular sin. And the Torah says, V'samach et yado, he will place his hand, al rosh hachatat, on the head of the animal, that's going to be the sin offering. And he will slaughter the sin offering in the place of the Ola. The Ola is often referred to as the burnt offering, even though Ola doesn't mean burnt. Ola means ascent in the sense that it's an offering that was um, uh, consumed completely on the altar. So the entirety of the, um, of the offering would ascend up to uh, the heavens, as it were. So it's referred to in English as the burnt offering because it all got burnt up, but Ola means it all ascended. Okay, so fine. The chatat 
hand goes in the head, that's not a particularly uh, novel concept when it comes to the offering of any sacrifice. And okay, there weren't endless places in, in the inside the altar where sacrifices could take place. So we're being told that the chatat offering is offered at the same place as the ola offering. The ola offering, which was not done in response to a sin, it was done in response to uh, many, many different things, including um, uh, just d- daily well-being uh, in the temple. Okay, looking at that verse, uh, um, we look at Rabbeinu Bachya. Um, there are two rabbis in Jewish um, intellectual history that are often referred to as Rabbeinu Bachya. Sometimes they're actually confused for one another. This is Rabbi Rabbeinu Bachya, 13th, 14th century Spain, who was mostly an exegete, mostly a commentator on Torah. There's also Bachya ibn Pakuda, who was a philosopher. Um, not that this guy wasn't philosophical, but that's not, um, this is not the author of the book Chovot HaLivavot, The Obligations of the Heart. That's the, a different Rabbeinu Bachya. And look what he says. Tam shchitat hachatat why is it that the spot where the chatat, the sin offering, would be sacrificed is in the exact same place as the slaughtering of the ola? Reader, don't just look over this as a nothing. It's a something. This was done in the ancient ritual so that the person who sinned would not be ashamed. You can see exactly where this is going. And other people who happened to be around in the temple that day would not be able to just figure out based on the spot that you went to in the room if he had done a sin in his or her heart or done a sin in, in, in action. Meaning, I, I always thought it interesting that um, I, I've never been in a church when confessions were being done, the only my only visual of um, the notion of, of offering a confession to a priest is through media, right, movies or TV shows, and it always struck me that it's not a necessarily a private thing. That there's sometimes a line to see who's going to go into the confessional box, right? So maybe on one hand, that's that's a positive thing that everyone is understood to be a sinner. We all have sinned, and so it shouldn't be embarrassing to be online to go confess your sins to the priest. What, what you're confessing, hopefully, is private, but that you're confessing means that you're a human being. That is one way of looking at it. The rabbinic idea here is the exact opposite. Tons of people would go to the inner area of the temple, and some would be there to celebrate, and some would be there to offer a todah, thank you, and some would be there because it's a yantif, and some would be there because they had just committed a sin. And the chatat that they were bringing was to bring atonement for that sin. And so according to Reina Bachia, I don't know if this is intended in the pshat, it's specifically the case that where you went if you had sin on your mind is the exact same place you would go if you had ola on your mind, so that just by scanning the area, you wouldn't be able to say to yourself, ah, Thanksgiving people over there, holiday observing people over there, those are the sinners. Look, they're all lining up in the chatat spot. There's no chatat spot. Okay. Pause right there, because that's, that's kind of rabbit hole or minor rabbit hole number one, and, and from there we're going to go into a discussion about the notion of shame in the Jewish tradition. Let me see if there are any uh, reactions to Rabbeinu Bachia's read on that verse uh, or what we've put it laid out so far. Anybody want to contribute yet? Larry? Not serious, but just to point out, you managed to pick a, a, a pasuk to comment on the Robert Alter in his translation on page... Um, 384 from verse 
14 to 32, has not a single comment on any of those verses. So wow. I think it's fantastic that you found something to comment on. Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking at the Eitz Chaim on the left here. I prepared this at home just on, in, in, in my Big Road Gedolot, in my collections of commentaries and, and Safaria. And I noticed that the JPS, our own Eitz Chaim JPS commentary, um, the, the commentary part that was uh, authored by um, no, Kushner, uh, brings it down there. Uh, in the bottom of page 600 in the Eitz Chaim Chumash, it's not attributed but if you're looking at that book, it's, it's written very similar. It is done there in order not to embarrass those bringing a chatat by identifying them as repentant sinners. It would not be apparent to an onlooker whether the individual is bringing a purification offering or a burnt offering. Okay, so unattributed, it may be that Rabbeinu Bach is not the only medieval sage uh, who came up with that reading. Joanna? I was taught that on Yom Kippur, when we recite um, Ashamnu and Achet, that we should, you should look down, like you shouldn't be looking out at the crowd. So it's a very interesting sort of dichotomy, because on the one hand, like we're all there, it's Yom Kippur, there's sort of a certain sense that we've all sinned, but um, that like you shouldn't be looking at anyone so as to say like, oh, I'm looking at you because you're a sinner. Yeah, right. So... It's a wonderful comment because, of course, the Ashamnu is in the plural to make it clear that it's not just I who come before God as a sinner, but I'm, a, I'm in a community of sinners. Right? Think of what the Chazan says before intoning Kol Nidre, right? Thank you, you know, for giving me permission to to, to pray with the sinner. So there, there's no suggestion that we're not all in some situation hold on to, holding on to chatat, but in the staging of it here in Vayekra, and what you mentioned, Joanna, there's this notion that there should still be some privacy in the matter, right? That it that you don't have to be totally splayed open in your um, in, in in the sins that you're holding on to. The fact that you're not perfect, that's known. But that but that you're coming today to offer a chatat, that 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 can be um, that can kind of just be a, a a part of the whole theater of the day without our focusing specifically on your sin today. So let's turn to the next source. Next source. Sorry. Someone? No? Masechet um, Sota, Tractate Sota in the Talmud. It's page 32, side B. And there's a discussion here on, uh, on um, the extent to which you sh- uh, someone should allow or even or be forced to say things out loud, which would be a discredit to that person, right? In like an American law, you're not obligated to self-incriminate, right? So the question is, in ritual practice, should you be obligated to say something aside from in a whisper that would expose your guilt, expose your responsibility? Um, an enormous amount of the material that deals with the Particulars of how we daven is in Masechet Brachot, in the fifth chapter, a lot of it based on the narrative of Hannah and her prayer as she is praying before Eli the priest in the Haftarah that we read in this, on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. But there's also material scattered around, including in this section of Masechet Sota. So we pick up in the middle of a conversation, because I just wanted to give an excerpt, and the Talmud, the Stam of the Talmud asks, Ugnu Ram, responding to a previous line that suggested that there might be certain situations where you would have to say out loud something which would be a gnut to you, a, a demeaning of you or a degradation of you. 
Is that really the case? Should we expect that? The Talmud answers his own question. But didn't Rabbi Yochanan, the ha here is a didn't, meaning um, it's a retort. Didn't Rabbi Yochanan, Mishum Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, in the name of none other than Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, say the following, You ever wonder why we daven in a whisper, right? That's the language that... I adopted when Rabbi Chorney got here. She says it's, you know, you dive in the Amidah in a quiet whisper. And it's very intentional language, right? Because quiet means that it is not supposed to be audible to others. Whisper means you're saying the letters. You're saying the words, right? It's actually the exact right way to do it in English. You're supposed to dive in a quiet whisper. Have we ever th- th- thought about why? why? Why can't you just think the Amidah? And why do you not say the Amidah louder? Is it just because we would be distracting others? I mean... We can say the Shema next to each other, not distract each other. Why is the Amidah said in a quiet whisper? According to this um, source, Masechet Sota, Kedei Shalo Levayesh et Ov Rei Avera. So as not to embarrass those who have committed sins. Shaharei lo chalak hakatuv makom ben chatat laola. For after all, this is now Masechet Sota essentially paraphrasing our verse from Vayikra, the Torah made no distinction in the sacrificial system, and remember, prayer replaces the sacrificial system between the spot that the chatat offering was offered and the spot that the ola offering was offered. Just uh, reading into what the Talmud is saying here, can anyone discern something interesting about how prayer was done then such that the reason that we say our amidah in a quiet whisper is so that we don't embarrass people who may have sinned? What do, what, what do we infer from that in terms of how prayer was done back then? Jer, um, whose hand is it? I can't... Um... David. Oh, yes, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, it, it sort of infers that people are confessing their sins and in, within the Amidah, that that is something that's common maybe to, to see, to see people like giving of, uh, you know, their confessions. Right. Imagine if, like, our our Amidah is so darn fixed. In some ways, that's wonderful, so that every Jew is the same thing. Everyone says, We're going to say it in a few moments, we dive in the Ma'ariv Hamidah, but there's nothing particular about it. So the fact that you hear me saying that doesn't embarrass me, because I know that you're saying it. The fact that the, the Gemara here says, you should say it in a quiet whisper so that sinners are not embarrassed, suggests that part of the Amidah back then, and we know this from other sources, was a combination of fixed material and spontaneous material. And perhaps in the Slachlano of Inuki Chatano paragraph, the penitent, the Jew, would say, and which things am I asking forgiveness for? These, right? Just like in the Rifa'enu paragraph of the Amidah, in most Sidorim, there is a place for you to insert in your own kind of mini Mishaberach. It was clearly the case, otherwise the source wouldn't make sense, that when you daven the Amidah back then, it was expected that you would make it particular and specific, including the things that would incriminate you, and therefore you say it in a whisper, right? So that people might know that you're davening, but they don't know what you're davening. Look at the next source. This is Rashi's commentary on this spot. He, he, just a slightly expanded version. Doesn't, he doesn't add that much, but I wanted to uh, bring his slightly expanded concept. On the words, Why, why did the sages establish that you daven in a whisper? So Rashi just continues the question. Why do they establish that a person should say the Amidah in a whisper? And by the way, that in rabbinic Hebrew, the word tefillah specifically means the Amidah. 
We use the word tefillah to refer to all prayer, but when the rabbis were, were speaking in any kind of a halachic sense about hatfilah, hatfilah, the prayer, is the amida. It's an interesting alliteration there. Like I found with respect to Chana. Interesting, he puts it in the first person there as if no one else would have thought of the association with Chana. Um, and he quotes from the first chapter of the first book of Shmuel, uh, which again is the Haftarah for first day of Rosh Hashanah. The Kola Lo Yishama, her voice was not audible. There's a lot of material in that first chapter that in the fifth chapter of Brachot, the rabbis learn, interestingly, the paradigmatic way of doing prayer from Chana's prayer, from a female prayer. So you have male rabbis learning out the laws of the, of the tefillot that men in their eyes would, would be the one who would be obligated to, but their paradigm is Chana. And it says that her voice was not audible. You remember the scene that Ellie thinks that she's drunk. She's not drunk. She's just uh, he's so, so moved by the experience that she seems a little bit disordered, but she's not disordered. She's in tefillah. et that there, we should not embarrass those who have committed sins. Hamitvadin betfilatam, who give a vidui, a confessional. That's ashamnu bagadnu gazalnu, but specifically to them in their amida al averot should be adam on the sins that are in their hands, right? So Rashi reifies this, which makes me think that in Rashi's time, either he's just reading backward into the text, or in Rashi's time also, it was commonplace that in your Amidah, you do a vidui. You actually say the things that you're, you're sorry for. Shaharei, and then he goes back to our verse in Vayikra, lo chalak hakatuv makom ben chatat la'ola. Um, the Torah did not make a distinction between the location of the chatat offering and the ola offering. Lo kava l'shchitat chatat, Makom, the, we did not um, specify a location for the sin offering, Bifneatsmo, on its own, easily recognizable. We know exactly who's going there. Shaloya vinu shehi chatat umit So that we would not recognize, Yavinu, understand that that person is there for a sin offering and therefore be embarrassed. So let's hold there for a second. So we've got, we've got the verse. We've got the commentary in the verse that suggests that the um, the way in which the sacrificial geometry was set up was so as not to embarrass uh, a sinner. The tefillah system that was overlaid on that, which we have now in lieu of the sacrificial, uh, sac- sacrificial system, is done in the same way. Every Amidah that you've ever said, I imagine, has been on some level like this, you may not have thought about why, right? Again, you might have thought about it as a notion of concentration or a notion of, um, you know, of a different kind of privacy. Here it's so that we are not embarrassing the one who otherwise in his or her prayer would have said, I'm asking forgiveness, God, for this sin, for that sin, for this sin. Thoughts, reactions, comments? Yeah, I have a couple comments that I wanted to make. One is, is that, that relates to this uh, idea of not embarrassing. You know, you're, the, the congregation doesn't know, but the but the priest or the rabbi knows. You see, we have a thing in the law that's a penitent, you know, clergy privilege, and we have attorney-client privilege, and we have marital privilege, and the holder of the privilege in the law is the person who commits the sin. You can't disclose that as a matter of law in California, someone's privileged communication if you're the if you're the priest versus the penitent. So what I'm saying is it's interesting that we have enshrined in American law this idea that you can confess your sins 
to the rabbi and the rabbi has to keep those private under penalty of law and you can't disclose it. But that also means that the rabbi or the priest is burdened with the knowledge of the sins of the penitent. And that's a high burden because he knows or she knows. You see, that that's interesting. And then the prayer thing is interesting to me because in the Zoom context, you can pray out loud. Hmm. And, and and for me anyway, it does help me concentrate and also helps me learn. So one of the things I like about the Zoom minion is I don't have to be quiet because I'm by myself. That's fascinating, Brand. On the first thing, I mean, yes, all those sins that you just confessed to me last week, I'm going to hold on to them. I'm not going to tell anybody about them. It's just between me and you, even that one. We're talking, you know which one I mean. On the second point, that's really fascinating because I I, I identify with that. I I get something out of davening in quiet when I'm in a room full of other people, but um, there is something about, we're, we're going to see the Rambam in a second who, who, who codifies this into halacha. There is something about the words actually being produced um, that, that creates, I don't know, a, 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 a rhythm, a momentum to the prayer that, at least I, and apparently you, find harder to achieve when it's actually quiet, right? Um, and uh, the, the, the rationale originally, or at least one of the rationale, has to do with uh, not embarrassing the person who's praying, but there might also have to be something related to what it means to develop this motion of prayer, and it's hard to do that completely in quiet. Joanna? Or, or are we going to say something else, Brant? Oh, okay, Joanna and then Larry? Just to comment and further play on that, what I find very you know they say like you know some people fall asleep better to white noise like total quiet is no good so when we're together in a minyan you have that white noise around you you know the little whispers you hear of you know other people davening you know maybe sometimes a line here or there that a person says a little bit louder not to mention the other extraneous noises that might be happening in the room you know a child passing by or whatever and and I do find that, that like it's too quiet to pray all by yourself. You need a little bit of that white noise. Yeah. I'll say something, um, something I've observed and, 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 and I wanted to come out with zero judgment whatsoever. One of the differences between davening a room where everyone in the room or 90% of the room or 80% of the room really knows every word and is saying every word is that there's a different hum that is created in between the things that are done out loud versus when you're davening in a room where fewer of the people in the, in the room are saying every word in between. In fact, they're just waiting for the things that are being said out loud. And one of the things that, I mean, I love davening in lots of different minyanim, but one of the things that I actually like davening, I like about davening in a, in a very from setting, and many of you know for nine years I davened with the Satmers and Kiras Joel at my first congregation. Um, and, you know, I, I don't see the world that they do. I certainly don't see Israel the way they do. But I liked being in a room where they where where the hum it was, it, it was never quiet because even during Pesukei de Zimra, in between the beginning and the end, there there was a a vibration in the room that that kind of carried me along. And Joanna, from what you said, I something just came to me that I you helped me you helped me put words to something I've been experiencing throughout the entire year. Brant said that he likes davening in Zoom because he can daven his Amida a little bit audibly because. We're only allowing, at least in our minion, one person to be unmuted at a time. And when I dive into my home um, and I'm just a participant, 
it's so utterly quiet that when the shaliach tzibur, as it were, comes out with the next thing, it distracts me because it's such an intrusion because it's been quiet, 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 and that person ends the Shema, and if I haven't finished the Shema, it's sometimes I can't even, I don't even remember, remember where I was. So we've gotten used to some of the audible mechanics of davening, and Zoom has changed it, and it's very far from what these sources are talking about in terms of the, the original rationale, and we'll see how the Rambam makes sense of it in a second. Larry? Sorry, just going back to the um, issue of embarrassment. So I noticed that, that in, the, in the Shema Koleinu uh, part of the Amidah um, uh, blessing, there you're instructed, you're supposed to insert specific um, um, petitions. And the source is actually of Zarah 8a. But I noticed in my Bar Mitzvah Sidur, the Joseph Hertz Sidur from many years ago, it says in the Salachlanu Avinu Ichatanu paragraph, on fast days, slichot are inserted here after Pashanu. Hmm. So it's possible this, uh, we don't do that, and I don't think, and, and that's not even mentioned in in, uh, in other um, Sidurim, but maybe there was a tradition at some point of actually inserting some form of Avinu um, Makeno confessions type of thing. Yeah, I mean, th- there must have been, and we know that 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 um, the the general arc of tefillah over the last two thousand years has been from fluidity to constancy, right? Uh, spontaneity to utterly fixed. So much so that in the last twenty or thirty or forty or fifty years, as as different progressive streams of Judaism and renewal Judaism sought to bring back spontaneity in prayer, it was considered radical when you might say it was actually radically traditional. Um, and, and, and maybe we should get back to that a little bit. Um, I want to push forward because there's one and a half more sources I want to read, and it's getting time for Mariv. So look at the next source. This is the Mishnah Torah, Rambam Hilchot Tefillah, his laws of Tefillah, chapter 5, um, Halacha number 9. Hashvayat Hakol Ketzad. How are you supposed to modulate and, and, and deal with your voice uh, in prayer. That verb hashvaya, it's the he feel, if you're a grammar nerd, of the root shin vav yud or shin vav hey, like shiviti adonai lenegdi tamid, I place God before me always. So how, what's the emplacement of your voice? It's the causative of that root. Lo yagbiya kolo, you shouldn't raise your voice. You don't dove in the amidah like this. Not in your private amidah, betfilato. But you also shouldn't pray in your heart, by which he means quietly, right? Uh, we're always praying in our heart. He's not saying you don't have kavanah. You don't pray, I would say, only in your heart. It's in between. Ella, rather, I love this phrase, mechatech hadvarim bisfatav. You cut the words with your lips, right? Think of what, what what's the word? Is it um, orthography? Right, the the production of of words that your what your lips are doing are cutting. If you want to really break it down, cutting off sound in certain rhythms so that your vocal cords are producing air that have been turned into words. Right, so it's a in Hebrew it's called a cutting, a cutting of words with your lips. You have to make it audible to your ears, but in a whisper. This is Rabbi Chorney's notion, right? In a quiet whisper. You actually have to daven loud enough, even when you're with other people, that you hear it. That's actually not easy to do. It's not so easy to daven loud enough that you hear it, but not loud enough that the person next to you hears it. The lo yashmiya kolo, and you should not 
uh, raise your voice. Ella imkain hayacholeh, unless you were sick. Unless you're brant, right? Unless you're not able to have kavana in your heart, unless you actually make it louder, right? So the Rambam got it. Some people have a hard time davening quietly. mutar. It's permissible. You shouldn't do it, but it's permissible. You can do that only on Zoom. Only as long as you're not doing it while other people are around so that your louder Amidah does not disturb them. All right? so literally, I mean, he obviously could not have imagined Zoom, but he's basically saying if you're davening kiachid in the middle of nowhere and you can't have kavanah because you don't have that hum around you, you can make it, make, make it a little bit louder. But if you're davening your Amidah around other people, you shouldn't do it so loud because like my experience that I just uh, shared on Zoom, since people are expecting a quietude, your voice could interrupt them. Okay, um, he doesn't here talk about the rationale being one of shame. He just talks about how you actually should place your voice in between quiet and loudness. The last thing I wanted to share is like a thirty-degree ten, uh, tangent, the the or maybe a fifty-degree tangent. The 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 weird um, text you have in front of you. Um, is from the Brown Driver Briggs Biblical Dictionary. It's considered the the classic um, and um, authoritative dictionary of biblical Hebrew. Uh, many people who study Mishnah and Talmud, <laughs> and you guys, he's got it right there. Well done. Um, David never goes anywhere without a BDB right there. Uh, so what Jastro, for those of you in my Rashi class, um, uh, is to, Bibli- to rabbinic Hebrew in the, in the Midrash and the Talmud and the Mishnah, the BDB is to biblical Hebrew. It's interesting to me um, that the word lehit bayesh, to embarrass yourself, or levayesh, to embarrass someone else, is from the root bet vav shin. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what the root is of a complicated verb. Bet vav shin. And uh, you'll, it, 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 it takes a semester to figure out how to read a single BDB entry, but you'll see that first entry talks about the origin of Bosch as a notion and, and its, its, um, its um, parallel in Aramaic, and he gives you the Syriac in case you can read Syriac, and it gives you the Arabic, blah, 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 different places. But if you look down to where I bolded it, there's an ancient biblical form that we don't have anymore, really, called polel. And if you know how biblical forms work, it's pa'al and pu'al and pl. Polel was when you took a, 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 a root like bosh, which only has two consonants, the bet and the shin. And in some forms, the second consonant was doubled and the middle vav is gone. And so bosh turned into boshesh. And what he says is that it's the same root. Boshesh is the polel form of the root bosh. And that goes us, brings us back to last week's Parsha Kitisa, where Moshe, the reason for the golden calf, the rationale for the golden calf, was that the Israelites went crazy because Moshe had not come back. Vayar ha'am ki boshesh Moshe la'redet. The people saw that Moses was embarrassed to come down. That's not what it means. He was delayed in coming down. So early on in the taxonomy of biblical Hebrew, we have an association, which is just interesting to think about. I have no answer for this. I'm curious for yours. I have no resolution to it. It's just present as I think about embarrassment, that delay and shame were cousins of one another. And that if you took the root that meant bosh 
and you double the second letter, you create the word that means shame. Even so, the way that BDB defines it, he says, what does boshesh mean? You see it there in the bold. Delay, comma, in shame. Except that the proof text he brings, does it suggest that when Moshe was coming down late, that he was coming down shamefully? If anything, the shame was what they were experiencing, not he. So I wanted to pose it to you as we've been talking about um, the, the privacy and the non-obligation to expose your shame to others. What can people come up with as a midrash on etymology here for why delay and shame might have been connected to one another in the in the early early contours of Hebrew? I can try to take take it. Sure, Just, go ahead, David. Um, well, I guess there's a little bit of a sense that. A lot of things that delay us are because of the kind of fear and um, perhaps stress of of wanting to do something or not sure if you want to do something. Um, and I can see how like that kind of uh, fear, anxiety could be related to a kind of like shame. And then the longer you delay, also the more shamed you become. Good. Right? Classic like. It's, it's the classic, like writing an email, you know, you're supposed to have replied to an email and you see somebody at Shul, did you reply to my email? And then you go, oh God, you know, it hits you that you should have been, done that a week ago. That's <laughs> wonderful, David. This notion of that your delay, your bishush in doing the right thing turns into a busha, turns into a wrong thing. That's a, that's a wonderful connection. Anyone else want to play around with that? And again, I came with nothing specifically in my back pocket on this one. I just wanted to show it to you as an interesting interesting linkage in the language, language linkage. Anyone? Larry? And well, maybe this will be our last comment. Yeah, this is going in a slightly different direction because I think this is, a, this is we're talking about shame and ashamed, right? Like the hit, the hit, the hit is the to be ashamed yourself. So, um, but to shame someone is to actually call them out, so to speak. Yes. Um, and this is not the direction you're going in, and I hope we'll give a really nice drasha on this subject. I can't remember if you've done if I've heard you do it, um, of the difference between shame cultures and guilt cultures. Mm. But we are, in our culture today, very quick to shame. Not to be ashamed, but very quick to shame. Um, and um, I could go on in talking about guilt and tshuva, because tshuva is the way out of guilt. There's no way out of shame, very, very simply. But once you're in that morass of having been shamed, it's very hard for the person to get out of it. Yeah. Uh, and whether, whether being ashamed is something that you are hesitating to do uh, may be because you're trying to find a way to get out of it and to resolve the situation. But that's all I got on that. That's fascinating, Larry. There's an inverse relationship, particularly, as you said, in our society between the rapidity with which we are comfortable shaming others and the delay in recognizing the things about which we should be ashamed. Um, I, 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 I want to meditate on that because I think that's, I think that's ever present. Who knows? Is, is that present way, way, way back in the ur Seeds of Bosch and Boshesh? I don't know, uh, but it's a but it's a very um, relevant modern um, holding of it. So um, we're in Vayikra, and we went from Vayikra to shame and to tefillah and and to delay. And I wanted to share this with you both because I thought the it would be 
interesting for people who dive in a lot to know at least one of the reasons why you dive in semi-quietly and also to remind yourself and to remind me that every verse of the Torah, including Vayikra, has treasures if you just look in the right place and with the right amount of depth. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.